With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Paranormal UK Radio Network. The best in paranormal talk radio in the UK and around the world. Welcome to Bigfoot and the Bunny. This is a couple's journey into the mysterious, the unknown, and and the the paranormal. paranormal. I'm your host, Chris Carr. And I'm your host, Kristen Johnson. Together, Together, we we are are Bigfoot Bigfoot and the the Bunny. Bunny. Welcome to Bigfoot and the Bunny. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday. Goddess, we made it here. That's right. (laughs) We hope you guys are doing good out there. We got a really fun show planned. Uh, we just, Chris and I just went on a little shopping spree. Yes, for, we for did. Us. Well, you, yes. You, do you want me to say this? We, yes, please. I told okay. her we'd plug our. We will throw a plug. Stuff. We are in a metaphysical shop, aka witch store, the Enchanted Dragonfly, a little earlier. And uh, we bought some some fun stuff. They had some great things. I wanted to buy everything. I, yeah, I couldn't was, get them out of the shop. It's usually the other way around, but. <laughs> I could not get him out of the shop. It was. I uh, still think you made out with more more goodies than I did. I did. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. I don't either, but it's all good. <laughs> Take care of my girl. But Enchanted uh, Dragonfly is um, in Blackstone, Mass, right next to Winsocket, Rhode Island, <laughs> and uh, very nice people over there. Yeah, I guess they they have a. Uh, association her daughter runs harmony crystal company yes and we're going to look into that they're doing some raffles and drawing and uh drawings and we'll tell you more about it as we come to know it but uh very nice people uh great quality products um i got this nice piece of labradite on my my neck over here which does go with his shirt amory young she said nice shirt chris oh Brown. yeah you like that <laughs> you have to put the comments i'm representing there. Represent. represent i did was it last night, night before last so yeah that's right i that's represented right. There's the girls. Girls on and yep. uh we actually got these with Anne marie young in salem and uh that was a lot of fun so yeah it was we, yeah we've got a, a great show and uh i know already we already know there are a couple internet issues so bear with us we're going to yes. try to space out our questions seems like there's a little bit of a delay we tried a few things before the show but it's getting late so we're, we're going to go for it um, we're bringing back our friend Morgan Domler, and uh, she's amazing. Uh, she's the author of 42 books with three more coming out on the subjects relating from Irish uh, mythology, paganism, and fairies. I believe her latest book, 20th 
first century fairies. Um, she's going to tell us about it. Yes. Uh, she's contributed to multiple anthologies and magazines as well. Uh, taught workshops on these topics across the United States and internationally. And uh, she's a trip. I think you guys are going to love her. Let's bring her right on. Hey, Morgan, how are you? Hello, everybody. Nice to be here again. Uh, it's nice to have you. Welcome to Bigfoot and the Bunny for the second time. Yes, thank you. It's been a while. It's been like a year and a half or something since we talked to you. So I think you you wrote like, I don't know, a hundred more books. Since then. <laughs> <laughs> you are a busy bee. It feels and, that uh, way. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's great. Uh, you're very pro prolific in your writing. And um, you have a lot to say about fairies and fairy witchcraft and this sort of thing. So uh, we're just going to let you fill us in and uh, try to, you know, pick out our questions and audience comments. Sure. So, yeah, as you just mentioned, I just had a book come out um, the end of January. It was uh, 21st Century Fairy, which is looking at um, encounters with fairies in, in, you know, the 21st century. And also, you know, I wanted to sort of work out like fairies are sort of in the past or archaic. Um, you know, a lot of people, when you ask them about fairies, they sort of immediately think of them as something historic and not something modern. So I wanted to show that people still do have experiences today and also talk about some of the ways fairies are modern themselves. Um, you know, fairies connected to modern technology and people having fairy experiences where fairies are wearing like jeans and t-shirts and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So uh, that's, that's sort that's of really, what I was recently up to. That's very interesting because um, I think most people think about fairies as having these like little wings sitting on flowers and that sort of thing. But that's not always the case. Kind of like, like angels, they aren't exactly the way they appear in art. Exactly. And, you know, with fairies, there's so much more variety, I think, than people really expect. You know, like you said, they people tend to immediately kind of zone in on that uh, little tiny nature flower fairy um, out there. I mean, there's a lot of things that are out there, but there's so much more variety to it. Um, you know, you have fairy hounds and fairy cats and fairies a lot like humans. Spots. It's a lot. Don't piss off the fae. That's right, girl. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's kind of a, a big to do in places like Ireland, where they build roads around fairy mounds and that sort of thing, correct? Yep. Um, Ireland uh, and Iceland as well. Um, there's a history and, you know, even in modern times, there have been stories about roads that were rerouted, um, houses that are, you know, adjusted that were supposed to be built in one location are moved because it's a place, the fairies. And there's this idea that if you, you want them, you know, or rocks or um, fairy paths is another thing that uh, you know negative things will happen to the human. so there's a lot of respect given to it um, and this idea of not messing with those places 
As well, there should be, really. Um, mm-hmm. People should respect these things. I, I, I totally agree with that. I know Kristen does. Kristen loves fairies and has I built can. several fairy houses. I have. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I like I that. I also give fairy treats. I bake them goods. I do that offerings to offerings, the fairies. Yes, and Stara mm-hmm. as well. And um, I, a lot of stuff like that. Yeah, I, I do fairy magic. So, in uh, your opinion, Morgan, are fairies kind of the same thing we're talking about when we talk about elementals? That's a great question. Um, and it's actually something that I run into a lot people, people that are curious about this. I think that if we look at the older in the old stories, there'd be some clear separation. You know, you'd have fairies, which is this, this kind of general group, and then you have nature spirits which are a little bit different. And then you have elemental, which are a little bit different. But for the last really 100, 150 years, they've all been sort of grouped together. And the nice thing about history uh, across history is that it's always been sort of a catch-all term um, that a lot of individual sorts of things kind of get put into. So it has that sort of flexibility to it. So that's a very long-winded way of saying that, yes, most people today, when they're talking about elementals, are, are about um, what we would consider like a type of a fairy. They exist in um, a lot of different folklore, like Native Americans have, uh, dealt with a variety of um, elemental type creatures, from Pukwudgies to, you know, even things like skinwalkers. I don't know if that falls under that category, but... Uh, right here in, in North America, we certainly have a variety. Uh, Ireland is famous for them, and they're really seen around the world, right? Yeah, and that's one of the most fascinating things to me about these beings is that uh, wherever you go, you're going to have something. Obviously, they wouldn't call it a fairy. There's going to be language, different languages and different terms that mm-hmm. are used, but it would fit our our understanding and our definition. So I tend to call them fairy like you Western really wherever you go, any place there's humans. And, you know, these are beliefs and ideas as far as we have material. Um, so, you know, if you go to Korea, you have the, the Yojang and the, um, you know, which is translated into English as fairy, the Dokabi, which is translations. But the idea is that there's, similar enough that when they English for that, they used. Yeah, indigenous to North America, South America, there was actually a really fascinating article that the president of Mexico was talking about seeing this being, they called it an elf in English, but it's a type of, I believe, Mayan um, uh, spirit being. Uh, and he was in the newspapers. And I think it's always cool when you have the president of a country who's like, yes, I saw an elf. Wow. Yeah, yes. Definitely cool. <laughs> Absolutely. We um we have a question from Kim Horn about that. Um she says, Morgan, can you tell me what type of sprites or water fay there are? Is there a type of small mermaid type uh in particular, one that could be found in North America or more specifically New Orleans? New Orleans. New Orleans, baby. Sure. So I don't Personally, I don't know a lot about New Orleans folklore because I'm sure there are books and books and 
because New Orleans is one of those places that has a huge amount of history and a huge amount of belief going on with it. But in general, I can say, yes, there's a lot of mermaid beliefs around um, that particular area, the ocean in that particular area. Um, um, you know, the mermaid. But there's definitely a, a very, very historic concept that there are beings, cloud mermaid that we would picture, the, the half woman, half fish kind of being uh, maybe different, different sizes uh, going on. Um, and outside of that, for how many types of uh, sprites or water fray there are, there it's almost innumerable. Um, every culture has um, of different water spirits that they're going to write about. So like in, in Ireland and Scotland uh, and even Iceland, you have selkies, which are seal people. They look like seals, but they can come on land and take the skin off and look like humans. Um, of course, you have the traditional mermaids, uh, which we have here as well, but also, um, you know, in the Mediterranean and kind of all through that area. Um if you get into pretty much anywhere that has water, you're going to have some kind of water spirit, water fairies. Um, there's there's a lot of different options out there for what I could talk for the next two hours just about water fairies. So I don't want to get too I'll much do, to it, but well, we there's a lot. Through. There's a lot. <laughs> All things considered. Because of the uh, delay, yes. Um, I, I know like the Scottish talk a lot about these kind of water horses that, you know, um, lure people into riding them across mm -hmm. the rivers and then they'll they'll dive down and drown the person right yep yep um kelpies is what they're usually called in scotland um the, i should say there's there's two types kelpies um are the main one that people are aware of um a scottish belief they look they can either look like a sort of very attractive horse tempts people to ride them but once you get on it's like they're sticky and then you can't let go and get off and then they'll run into the water um kelpies can also take the form of a human and so as an attractive human they'll then seduce people um there's a really piece of um music in scotland called the kelpies lullaby which is at a human and the wife figured out what he ran away hair left him with this baby that they had had together and so he's rocking the baby and singing to it about its mother you know and how one day she'll return so it's actually a very beautiful song <laughs> very sad but but very beautiful mm -hmm. um and then you have the, the etruski the water horse um and they they don't turn into people but they otherwise are very similar to the kelpie I think this is maybe why Chris Farley lived in a van down by the river. Yeah. <laughs> he may have enjoyed the Kelpies. I, I'm not totally sure. Uh, lots of comments out, out there. Yeah, may, maybe. And, you know, he was a motivational speaker at that time, I believe. What's going That'll on there? Some motivation. Yeah, sure. Right. Take a ride. Um, Barbara, now. <clears throat> just asked a question. Um, Bob Burnell asked a question yeah. from Morgan. He says, are there good and evil fairies or are they all good? Sure. So um, 
Generally speaking, I would say we're probably safest to sort of understand that all fairies are in the middle, um, neutral, ambivalent. Uh, in Scotland, they do believe that there's two groups of fairies. You have the the seely. Um, seely is a Scots word. It means like blessed or lucky. And then you have the unseely, which is also a Scots word. And it sort of means like ungodly, unfortunate. Uh, so you have these two groups and the seely, the good, so-called good fairies, are the ones who are the most likely to help humans and um, be willing to be friendly to humans. And then the unseely are the ones who are um, the most likely to uh, not. <laughs> and like Kelpies would be unseely because they they have those stories about them drowning people. So from that point of view, you have the... Uh, um, they're just sort of seen as either to you be your friend or they might not like you very much. So if that answers the question. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Um, do you think there, is there a reason why people in the fairies seem to always be uh, intermingling, colliding with each other, whether it's the fairy mounds or the places they seem to choose to live, like unlike Bigfoot, say, who, you know, is rarely seen, they, it seems like people have interactions with fairies quite a bit more. Yeah, it's really fascinating if you look across all of the folklore, because um, it seems like there's something sort of symbiotic going on. Um, like they they need us for various things. Um, and then we also, you know, and seem to need them for various things and we can kind of theorize what we need them for but you know when it comes to them needing us like there's all these stories about them like borrowing technology um as different uh human technology goes along you would see stories about fairies who appear and ask to you know borrow something that's new basically um so that they can use it uh we see stories of them borrowing midwives because the birth rate is supposed to be very low with fairies. So when they do have a fairy baby, they don't have that. So they'll, they'll go to the local human community and um, borrow a midwife. Um, yeah, it's actually, it's a, such a widespread story. It's considered a folklore motif, which means that it's found in all these different cultures, the same concept. Um, wow. And then, you know, they like musicians. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating to see how sort of intertwined they can be with human communities. Do you think humans might be the reason why their birth rate is so low? Pollution and things of that nature? I mean, that's po certainly possible. It, it goes back, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. There's this sort of idea that they just don't tend to have a lot of children, that a lot of their children aren't very healthy. Um, so they sort of go to the human population. Um, there's also stories, of course, of them literally like stealing humans to, to join them, um, you know, and sort of supplement their numbers. Um, but, you know, depending on what stories you're looking at, there's, there's definitely some themes with the idea that as much as they need humans in certain ways, that humans do cause problems <laughs> for them. Um, so yeah, that could definitely of, factor in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for sure. Do you think, um, that 
that this is kind of an explanation really for a lot of the cryptids that uh, cryptozoologists uh, seek. I kind of go back to fairies, and so they may be one and the same in a lot of instances, things like Mothman. That's a really fascinating question, and I can give you my opinion but you know this is not something that there's any sort of set agreement on um, and you're going to run into a lot of different opinions out there but I definitely think that uh, particularly here in the U.S. there's certain things that um, we consider cryptids you know that have um, come about more recently like Mothman that in other situations probably would have been understood as fairies um, sort of from the beginning. I'm not sure that applies to all cryptids. Like there's definitely some out there that are different. I would consider Sasquatch and Bigfoot, for example, like a whole category of their own. Um, but there's there's definitely some really in- interesting overlap. It's, um, Mothman's a great example. I'm glad you brought him up because, you know, with his stories, he tends to show up before disasters happen. Um, he is sort of this ambiguous figure, like he doesn't cause the or warning they're going to happen. And that's something we see with a lot of, of fairy stories as well, that idea. That they're around at the time of um, a tragedy. Yes. But not necessarily the cause. Yeah, that they'll show up. Right. Like, for example, to use an Irish example, the um, a lot of people are familiar with the Banshee, um, the Banshee, which it literally just means fairy woman, but it's this type of fairy that tends to be attached to particular families and will show up when there's going to be a death in the family, um, usually just before the death happens to cry and, and wail and sort of mourn for the person that's about to die. And a lot of people, you know, in, in 21st century, um, especially outside of Ireland, see the banshee as like something that's dangerous or something that like causes death. But most of the stories, she's not, she's not killing anybody um, in the majority of the stories. Um, she's showing up as a warning that it's going to happen, you know, to let people know, to kind of be prepared that this is the direction things are going in. So I think it's very similar to that. Yeah. Now, and the Celtic mythology, and um, you know, speaking of Ireland and that sort of thing, uh, we have the Morrigan, right? And the Morrigan is is more of a god or deity like figure, if I'm not mistaken. Could you tell us about the Morrigan? Sure. Um, I've written an entire book on the Morrigan, so I could all talk about that for two hours. But um, yeah, she's <laughs> she's a um, goddess in in ancient Ireland. Um, she is a really interesting one, I think, because in most other cultures, when we're looking at things like war um, or battle and death and things like that, we tend to see gods sort of put in charge or focused on. But in Ireland, we see these goddesses and um, the Morrigan being one of the main ones, her name probably means great queen. Um, if it doesn't mean great queen, then it would mean phantom queen. Cause there's a bit of a debate about the etymology, but um, she's connected to battle and warfare and all also things, sovereignty and prophecy and magic. So she's got a lot of going on with her. 
Um, she can take the form of a raven or a crow. Uh, in other stories, she appears as a wolf. Oil. So she's she's very versatile with the shape shifting, um, and um, very powerful, which is is interesting to see. Like I said, it's not things that we normally look at goddesses as being connected to. Um, that sort of whole you know battle and and strife and that sort of thing. Uh, it's super interesting, and I know there's a lot of lore and a lot of overlap or maybe correspondences, I should say, to other goddesses in different cultures. Um, this happens a lot, right, where one culture, you know, uh, is um, venerates a, a particular uh, god or goddess, and then you can move over to a different culture, and it it's kind of like... I don't know, maybe the Romans or the Greeks back in the day would be able to travel to a different area, find similar gods. Also very much like, um, but maybe for different reasons, uh, the Haitians using saints, right. you know, to venerate uh, that represented their West African loa. Syncretism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Exactly. And you, do you see that with the Morrigan as well? You know, this is actually one of the things that, to me, makes her um, especially interesting. I think she's awesome, anyway. She's just got a lot of great stories and and lore and beliefs, and um, you know, yay, go Morgan, she rocks. But one of the things that's particularly interesting to me is that, you know, when Catholicism came in, we see certain goddesses like um, Bridget, who got subsumed and kind of became saints. Um, she became, and others who become saints became fairy queens. <clears throat> so Anya is an example, um, or Kleena. These are not as well known, of course, as Bridget, but um, because they, they didn't work as well as saints because of their stories, they became fairy queens, you know, queens of these various she, these various fairy hills. But the Morrigan just because of who she is and because she has this strong connection to um, some very intense things, you know, uh, fair, pretty intense. Um, she really couldn't become a saint and she also really couldn't become a fairy queen. So she ends up becoming this sort of um, almost like nightmare kind of figure. Um, and she was the not the only one, I should say. Her her sisters, uh, who are also uh, more in battle goddesses, Maiv um, and Maka, were kind of in this with her. Um, and they're considered to be, by a lot of academics, the um, predecessors of the Banshee, the predecessors of some of these sort of more um, dangerous figures that we find. Yeah, she's a very interesting case that way. That they they couldn't really do anything very palatable, so she just became like this uh, this sort of intense figure. Interesting, and I, I know a lot of deities take on different roles as they go along, or different cultures adopt them. Uh, we see that sort of thing with Hecate, and uh, I, really numerous different uh, gods and goddesses. Now, yourself, are are you a are you pantheonistic? Do you believe in 
polytheistic, uh, not pantheistic, I apologize, polytheistic and believe in multiple gods? That's okay. Personally, I do. Yes. Um, I was raised kind of agnostic and, uh, you know, in my uh, early years, I guess, um, sort of came to the, the concept of polytheism, the idea that there's, you know, more than one God kicking around. And it makes sense to me, um, although I understand you, there's a lot of different worldviews out there, but um, that's the one that, that I tend to go with. Yeah, I think we would agree with you. Yes. Um, there were some questions out here in the audience, so let me bring up a couple of those. Uh, Bob Burnell asked, how do you communicate with fairies? Uh, EVPs, spirit boxes, do you go into the world of the paranormal, as it were, like the way we would try to uh, talk to spirits uh, with maybe technology? How does it work for you? Sure. So, I mean, for me personally, I have a slightly different, but for people that do paranormal invention, um, I have seen people use um, particularly spirit boxes, um, EVPs sometimes, a lot of times what people find if they're investigating a location that has fairies, that has um, whatever you want to call them, elementals, nature spirits, fairies, any of that stuff going on. Um, a lot of you don't have to use anything super complex. Um, you'll you'll hear them f- audibly, physically hear them. Um, and there have been cases where, you know, multiple people who are investigating together all will, you know, a voice in the trees, for example, um, or something similar. Uh, so they, they tend not to be very subtle if they're around. Um, they're, they're pretty quick to make it clear they're there. Um, but I have, like I said, I have seen people use EVPs and spirit boxes and get some results. So it's certainly a possibility. Uh, it's an option. That's fascinating. Yeah. I love that. And, and what do you feed them? Do you give them offerings? I know that was another question and I'm sorry. I'm not sure who asked it. It was a little earlier in the chat. That's okay. Offering. I can see the chat's very active. So things are yes. For offerings for things that you would leave them, um, you know, you will sometimes see people today suggesting things like candy or that sort of thing. I, I personally find that they, um, you, you're not going to have as much uh, success or the same results with anything that's got a lot of chemicals in it. Um, and unfortunately, that's a lot of modern candy. Uh, so what I generally suggest is people sticking to the more traditional offerings that we find across cultures. Um, dairy products are a huge one. Milk, cream, butter, anything like that. Um, bread, baked goods. Um, those are pretty common. Um, honey seems to go over. And um, in a pinch, I've used clear water something to sort of pour out or to give. Um, I find that like clearing, clean purifier works pretty well too. Um, if you don't have an option, fruit, any of that kind of stuff is, is also a good option. And when we're talking about these things, uh, are they actually consuming them like in a biological sense or is it just really the nature 
or I don't know, purity of the offering that, that makes a difference and that they're impressed with it. So this is actually something that people have been writing about since the 17th century. <laughs> so you might say it's a very commonly in, um, if people have spent 300 years discussing it and <laughs> is sometimes they will take the physical item. Um, but a uh, majority of the time, what these um, spirits, fairies are going to be taking is um, what they call the quintessence, the essence. Um, when I explain this to my children, I refer to it as the of the item. It's kind of that natural living energy that an item has in it. Um, and I think this is why they prefer things like, um, you know, dairy, uh um, things that have more of that vitality, that freshness, um, any of that kind of stuff. And there are stories about people who put something out and within a short time, like the item visibly seemed to change, um, to, you know, as if it had had that essence out of it. Um, it's also believed that what you give to them, um, um, particularly food item that's after you give it, it's not fit for human consumption. Like you shouldn't, uh, I don't recommend people eat offerings anyway, but you shouldn't eat something that's been offered to the good folk, to the fairies, um, because it doesn't have that value to it. That, that essence is gone. Um, so it's, it's not healthy for people, for humans, for people. It's kind of like uh, working with, uh, you know, necromancy, and that's what a lot of the paranormal folk that are probably tuned in do when they're giving like a, a shot of rum or tobacco uh, or exactly, or usually a vice for some reason. And I, I could never figure that out. Like, why give something that's passed on a vice, but maybe it doesn't hurt them anymore, <laughs> right? I, I don't know. Um, but it, it does seem yeah, to be kind I of mean, the It's like a show of good faith, I suppose. Respect and appreciation. Yeah. Respect, yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, you actually remind me of something that I had forgotten, which alcohol. Um, there's a big debate in the U.S. about whether it is or isn't appropriate um, to offer alcohol, uh, which gets into a whole can of worms. But um, in Ireland, I will say it's uh, considered appropriate to offer alcohol to the fairies. Um, my grandfather, uh, who's from Cork, used to have a thing about if he was outdoors and drinking beer, he'd pour a little of the beer out before he drank any to the fairies. You know, it's, it's like the good fortune. Um, when I was over in Ireland in 2019 um, for an event, I was talking to some people who uh, do home brewing and they were talking about the belief, um, which is an old one over in Ireland, that the, the top portion of the still, like that top 10%, belongs to the fairies, that it's, you know, you sort of have to give it to them because it, it belongs to them. Um, I guess that's also the most dangerous portion of the still, too. Like, that's the, the highest alcohol content is what they were trying to explain to me. I don't brew, so I'm just repeating. Okay what I was told, but of what you give to the fairies. That's cool. I wonder why in yeah. today's day and age with the and legality, I, marijuana, like why aren't people leaving pot? a little bit of pot for some of the fairies? And, and would they enjoy it? Okay. 
I went there. You, you certainly can. <laughs> I, in the past, um, I have a friend who smokes who has given them cigarettes. And, you know, that seems to be well received. Um, I don't know how, how old that tradition, obviously tobacco is considered sacred by a lot of indigenous groups and would be used as an offering. So it maybe ties into that a little bit. Um, I will say just really quickly on the alcohol topic that the one time I left something out for them and it disappeared, it was alcohol. Um, I had left okay. a, a, like a, a, I'm, I don't drink, so I don't know any of the terms, but one of the like smaller glasses not a shot glass, but bigger than shot that. Glass? Like a nip? Uh, no, I forgot what they're called. I know I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's a little bit bigger than yeah. a shot glass. Yeah it's, yeah, it's bigger than a shot glass, smaller than like a regular drinking, not what they are, but um, of whiskey. And I left it out, let's say eight o'clock that night. And I went, came back the next morning figuring I would dump it, um, you know, because the essence would be taken and it was gone. Like there was a little bit of brown residue on the bottom of the glass as if it had all just evaporated overnight. It's the strangest thing I've, I've ever seen with offerings myself. Wow. wow. Either that or we have drunk bunnies running around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. We, we could, we could. Um, do you consider them I to be that. interdimensional? Another excellent question. You're right on top of the excellent questions. Tonight. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think that that, is a bit of an open question. Um, I think that the modern language that we use, uh, interdimensional is one I've heard, extra-dimensional is another one that I've heard. Um, yeah. It's just newer ways to understand and explain the idea of the other world. Because, um, you know, the, the thing with fairies is that they're not thought to live in our world. They, they come here, they can interact here, they go back and forth, but that they themselves are from this other place. Um, it's called the other world, the world of fairy, elf land uh, is another name for it, um, Alfheim in uh, the Norse material. And what exactly it is and where it is, is sort of an interesting question because it's supposed to be sort of layered onto our reality, connected to our world, but it's still separate from it. So I think the way we explain that now in the 21st century is to say extra dimensional or um, interdimensional, you know, this idea that they're not, they're like a, a half step away from our reality. And that would explain why they're sometimes visible, sometimes not. That sort of thing, why you just don't go in your backyard and, well, it's full of gnomes. Um, you know, they happen to look like Brandon Cooper. It's, I can't anymore. I, 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 I had to throw Brandon in and, there. We love Brandon. He's our buddy, and he does kind of look like shaman. a gnome. He's a shaman. And uh, I know he has a, a belief in these things as well. Um, great guy. Hey, oh. I don't know where I, you I think that, to go there. Well, I'm just saying with the interdimensional, extra-dimensional thing, it, it is sort of like a ghost where it's just not here all the time, but it's here enough to see it, to witness it, to have some experiences. Um, mm -hmm. When we talk about witchcraft with fairies and fairy-based witchcraft, what what is the goal? Is it working with the fairies to achieve your own personal goals or something more for the... Um, fairies themselves 
I mean, I think probably more that second one, <laughs> to be honest. But, um, you know, witchcraft with fairies, for, for people who aren't familiar, um, is not a new concept. It, we've got records of this sort of thing back for hundreds of years um, in a lot of the Scottish witchcraft trials, um, you know, when people would be arrested and brought to trial and they're being questioned, you know, uh, they would be telling the people questioning them that no, they had not made a deal with the devil. It was with the, the queen of fairies. And, you know, they, they had a familiar spirit, but it wasn't a demon. It was a fairy. And that they had, you know, learned their healing because a lot of these people were what we would call cunning people cunning folk so they were healers for the most part um that they had learned their healing skill their knowledge of herbs from the fairies um so you know the idea of of human magic workers cunning folk witches whatever we want to call them having this connection to the fairies um it, it does go a, quite a ways back and usually the idea was that the fairies would be the one who would reach out to the person and sort of offer this, uh, this deal for, you know, training and knowledge and information. Um, usually if the human would agree to um, be in service to them in some sense, although it's a little unclear on exactly what the human was doing for them mm -hmm. um, besides maybe being a connection to this world. Uh, sure. But yeah, in modern terms, there's certainly people in the 21st century that, that, do it the other way around where they're going to the fairies and asking for things and, and sort of have that connection with them. But the, the older version would be uh, a little different. Yeah, I think so. I, I know we've researched things like, um, you know, the witch trials uh, of the past and the ini initial um, accounts uh, prior to Christianity rolling in and really, you know, torturing and, and murdering uh, these witches in Scotland and other places was the fae. They talked about fairies and the fae. And it seemed like that word got replaced with the devil as soon as Christianity rolled in. Mm -hmm. uh, almost weirdly so, and looking at things like the trials of Isabel Gowden, mm -hmm. right, right. that you mentioned, um, you know, and she's talking about having uh, in, sex with the devil in the woods. But you could go back you know, 50 years, or maybe 100, and it's that word is just replaced yeah. with fae or the fairy. It's fairy. funny. I, I was actually just talking about this with a friend of mine um, who also, her, her main focus is more on the, the Norse and Germanic end of things, but also very interested in this, this wider topic. And um, we were talking about the way that it seemed like a lot of what originally would have been fairies, the queen of fairy, et cetera, kind of got, you know, written over when um, Christianity came in and particularly during the witch trials, because it was people who, you know, to them, the reason that they were persecuting these people was because they, they truly believed that, you know, the devil was rampant and was going to ruin everything and had to be fought against. So when they're, they're catching these people, um, men and women who were practicing usually herbal healing, um, the, the, the label they're going to put on that is going to be, you know, the devil and, and demon, 
even when the people are saying like, no, it was, it was fairies that I was connected to and working with. And it's just this really fascinating kind of to shift that you see across, especially the 17th century. And, you know, Christianity always had a, a difficult time with fairies. Um, Catholicism took it a little easier on the fairies, which I think is why Ireland didn't have a lot of witch trials. Um, and they just sort of looked at the fairies as kind of in this, this middle zone. Um, like they're not good enough to be angels. They're not bad enough to be demons. So they're sort of uh, the neutral in the middle. Um, whereas, you know, particularly in the Protestant areas, they were much more about fairies as a type of demon, you know, like demon light, basically. <laughs> um, and when you're coming from that perspective and someone is saying, yeah, I learned how to use herbs from fairies, you know, that that's the direction you're going to go in with it. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And that kind of relates to Linda's question here, which is um, Linda Kruger asks, are they mischievous? Yes. Um, and I think whichever kind we're looking at, uh, mischievous is definitely a word that is regularly applied to them. Uh, um, some are, you know, positive end ones, some of what the Scottish would call the Seely Court. Um, they tend to be more lighthearted, mischievous, um, whereas the, the other end of the scale, it's going to be more like um, vicious practical jokes. <laughs> um, but mischievous is still a word that gets applied. And, you know, even today, you'll hear people telling stories about, um, for example, if you have a certain type of fairy around you in your house, your car keys will go missing. Yeah. Um, and right when you get really frustrated and sort of give up looking, they'll be sitting in the middle of your kitchen counter, <laughs> you know, where you would have had to have seen them before. Um, yeah. And yeah, and that definitely, I think, qualifies as as mischievous. <laughs> Most definitely. Yeah. Um, our friend, Amory Young, she wanted to know, do you see them in pictures? It was, it's way up there. Every, you were talking about the weed and it was, everybody was commenting. So yeah. Do you ever see them in pictures? Um, like photographs? Yeah. I, I personally um, have not yet seen a photograph um, that, I felt, and this is entirely my opinion, um, reflected in an actual fairy. Um, I, I've seen a lot of people who have taken pictures and circled things that they felt were, you know, fairies. Um, but usually it's very blurry or it's very hard to see. Um, and, you know, and pareidolia is a thing that happens. It's just how the human brain is wired, um, you know, so... It, it's natural to see faces and figures in, in random patterns. Um, I do think it's possible. Uh, I, I do think that eventually someone is going to get a picture um, of a fairy. Um, I think probably people already have, but they just didn't realize it was a fairy when they saw it. Because again, it's this huge range of beings. And usually the photographs will focus on like the really tiny kind of nature oriented things um, as opposed to, you know, there was a point in my life, for example, where I saw um, fairy hounds, um, two fairy hounds. I was with a friend of mine. Um, he saw them as well. And if someone had taken a picture, it would be very hard to tell in a picture that they weren't, um, you know, regular dogs, but they clearly were not. Um, I can tell the whole story of that if, if people want to hear it. Sure. But, <laughs> it's very interesting. 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't need a lot of encouragement, so it's fine. <laughs> um, so this was this was about 20 years ago now. Um, I have a friend who owns a store in a small city near where I live. It's about 40,000 people. And we, my friend and I were hanging out at the store and the friend who owns the store was inside on the phone. And my other friend and I were sitting out on the front steps and it's like twilight, which by the way is prime fairy seeing time for anyone who wasn't aware of that. And we're just kind of joking around. And all of a sudden it gets very quiet and all the traffic stops and we didn't pay attention to notice this because we're a little slow on the uptake and into this sort of silent trafficless city we look down and we see these two large black dogs walking side by side down the sidewalk on the other side of the street um, no human with them no literally no one was around it was like we were the only two people in the whole city which is very strange when we looked back on it and my friend looked over and sees these two dogs and makes this joke out loud to me. And he's like, Oh, wouldn't it be funny if they cross the street to our side of the street? And I'm not even kidding. As soon as the words were out of his mouth, these two dogs in perfect tandem, because they were walking um, literally, you know, abroad chest by chest in perfect tandem turn and walk across the street towards us. And I don't think I've ever moved so fast in my life. The two of us got up and ran inside the <laughs> store <laughs> and closed the door. And it's this, the way the store is, it's big picture windows in the front. The whole front wall is just windows. Sure. So as soon as we get in and close the door, which took maybe, I don't know, two or three seconds, we immediately turn and look out and the dogs are gone. There's no dogs anywhere. And there's nowhere they really could have gone. Um, even if they had started running when we got up, we still would have seen them, you know, somewhere in our range of vision. So we waited a good five or six seconds um, from what I remember. And then we kind of got our courage up, <laughs> as you do, and <laughs> decided, well, we're going to go back out and see because they don't look like they've they've gone anywhere. And so we opened the door and we stepped back out and we look the direction they had been, they're not there. We look the other direction and they're just past the store, still walking perfectly side by side, going down the sidewalk. And it was, it was physically impossible. They could not have passed in front of us without us seeing them. And there was nowhere else they could have been just the way the building is, is um, designed and, and fences and stuff. So we went right back into the store and closed the door again. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, yeah, no, we're out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I, I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> yep. Um, oh, I love that. Yeah. I, I think that's great. Um, to what to what purpose in the witchcraft then what would you do the fairy magic other than to appease them if they were, say, I don't know, upset with you or mm -hmm. upset with your property? So there's kind of a couple layers of approach. The majority of people who um, make an effort with fairies, whether it's offerings or what have you, are really doing it for that reason. Um, there's a whole joke that goes around on social media about, you know, offerings to fairies are like paying off the mob to not mess with your stuff. Um, 
So, yeah. And a lot of the, the traditional folklore, traditional fairy lore, that's what it's focused on. It's how to keep them happy so you can be good neighbors and, you know, they're not going to permanently disappear your car keys or, you know, anything worse than that. And a lot of what we find for recommendations for act to them is based on that. There's a whole thing about protecting against them, and there's a whole thing of like what to offer them to keep them happy. There's another layer to that of people who interact with them in a more direct manner. And those are like the witches I was talking about in Scotland before who would um, be learning from them, be um, you know given information, uh, knowledge about herbs, different things like that. And so that's definitely a reason that people still want to connect to them or, you know, have an interest in, in connecting with them beyond, you know, paying them off, so to speak. Um, and there's a whole class of pra magical practitioner, um, which cunning folk, again, whatever type of word we want to use, who really their entire specialty is dealing with fairy related stuff. Um, in um, Ireland, uh, it, the English term would be fairy doctor, and there's different terms, different places. Um, Banfasa would be the, the Irish language term. And this would be someone who, if you thought you had a fairy problem, um, you thought they were angry with you and nothing was helping, um, you thought, um, you know, your farm animals are getting sick or dying and you think it's the fairies are doing it. Or, you know, they, they're known for like stealing milk from cows, stuff like that. Right. Um, you know, someone's... was huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was that was literally your survival. You know, you, you can't afford to have fairies messing with your cows. Um, so you would you would go to this specialist and they would come and they would tell you um, if it was fairies and then they would kind of find a way to deal with it um, for you or tell you what you had to do to to make it right. Um, and that that would be sort of like the third level, I think, when it comes to this this subject of why people do it, you know, appeasement's definitely right up there. And then, you know, knowledge learning. Um, and then sort of that top level is knowing how to deal with problems. They remind me a lot of, I say, going back to say the Greeks and we're going to go back to, you know, almost BC or even in the BC for a few hundred years where people would refer to diamonds right, which kind of D-A-I-M-O-N-S, you know, like demons, uh, which were these sort of messengers, right, between the deity and and that person. And they would utilize these things to send forth their communications. Mm -hmm. uh, they were sort of that in-between entity, you know, before you got to, you know, deity level, you might deal with the, the diamonds first. Mm -hmm. If I'm saying that properly, I, I always screw it up. But they seem to kind of fit in that that way, kind of in between what we would consider a god or goddess mm -hmm. and uh, something that was still very much otherworldly. Yeah, no, and that's an excellent way to to explain it, that they're that in between. Um, there's an academic, I'm not going to remember his name now, but um, he refers to them as small gods. Um, you know, they're not like the big temple gods that you're going to go to for like you know, the, the huge significant things, but they're, they're the small gods. They're the gods who can affect like 
your livestock, for example, or, you know, if your crops are going to do well or not. And it's not so much about worshiping them as if they're gods. It's more about that balanced relationship where, you know, you're being respectful and polite to them, leaving them some offerings. And in exchange, they're, you know, not messing with your stuff and potentially even helping, you know, your stuff go better for you. Um, but it's definitely that sort of middle, middle category. Middleman, sure. kind of. Yeah. Mafioso. <laughs> way, yeah, mafioso. Yeah. Yeah. Way in between. Like, hey, you know, pay that guy yeah. and, and the cows will be okay. As I, I think they were trying to steal each other's milk and different things back then. Yeah, and it's 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 funny because if you go far enough back, there's an um, Irish myth from about the ninth century, which talks about how when humans first came to Ireland, and um, there was a big battle between the humans and the the old Irish gods, which is a whole separate story. But after that happened. Um, the humans found that their crops wouldn't grow, their cows wouldn't give milk, just nothing was working out for them. So they sort of went to this particular um, deity, that, his name is the Dagda, um, but he's also considered to be the king of the fairies, the king of the, all the she in Ireland. And they sort of made a deal with him. Um, the, the term in Irish they use is like a, a compact. And um, basically agreed that they would give a percentage um, of the crops and of the milk to the good folk, to the fairies in exchange for having crops and milk. <laughs> you know, it's that sort of a, we'll give you a little bit of what we get um, if you'll allow us to get the things to begin with. And even to this day, um, you know, there have been studies that were done, I shouldn't say to this day, but in the 20th century about farmers in Ireland who were interviewed and said, like, you know, a, a percentage of the harvest belongs to the fairies. It's their due. Like, you have to give them a certain percentage of things. Um, you know, the, the best of the crop belongs to them. And that's sort of how you live with them in a way that works out for everybody. Um, and there's also an idea that the different fairy groups in Ireland are sort of territorial and don't always get along. So there are stories about how like the, the fairies in, in one province would fight the fairies of another province and whichever one, they would have the good crop for the year. And wow. the other group, their province would not have as good of a crop. Um, so yeah, they have all these fascinating ties to to all of this stuff. Yeah, it sounds like regular people, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, Debbie Wallace Hagen asks, "What what's a good thing to give them to trade for a lost item? If you've lost something in your house, you think fairies may have taken it, or at least know where it might be. What's yeah. the next step?" Uh, I'm a huge fan of bribery, so I love this question. Um, yes, bribing fairies is always your your best go-to. Um, uh, what I usually do is initially offer something fairly small. Um, so like maybe uh, if I've just baked something um, or a little bit of like a, a tablespoon of butter, that much of a section, or a little bit of milk in a cup or cream in a cup. And um, sort of wait and see if the lost item is returned. Um, and then if it's not, you can kind of go up on the scale from there. Um, fairies, for some reason, in my experience, the sort that are around the house that are going to be taking things, really like broken stuff. 
So I've also had a lot of luck by giving them things that really other people, other humans wouldn't appreciate, um, like a you know a chipped teacup, the broken handle, things kind of see as um, useful in ways for some reason. And I shouldn't say just me. I've I've talked to other people that have had the same experiences. They seem to really like those things. Uh, maybe because they're they're one of a kind, they're unique because they're broken. Um, so that can also be an option if the item's not coming back with some good food bribery. Right. Now, do you work with uh, fairy houses or where do you put the offerings? So me personally, um, because there's a lot of folklore and I base a lot of what I do on, it's called the fairy faith, but it's it's fairy folklore uh, across Western Europe. Um, I tend to have a little area in my kitchen because um, there's a lot of stories about the hearth, um, which is the modern kitchen um, and the significance of that to the family and the fact that fairies were also fond of that location. Um, so I have a little place in my kitchen where I can, you know, leave things for them or make offerings to them. Um, a lot of people will have outdoor places um, I am personally a fan of fairy houses. I um, have been building them since as long as I can remember, even when I was, you know, a pretty small child. Uh, I don't know where fairy houses got started. I've tried to research it, and it seems to be one of these things that just showed up in a couple different locations, sort of at the same time, you know, books and things. So I think maybe it's just something people intuitively do. Um, there, there is a history in, I believe it's Rome, with house spirits of giving them a little house inside your house that represented sort of the, um, the place that was for them that you could do offerings. So maybe that's ultimately where it comes from. I don't know. But um, yeah, outdoor fairy houses, you could certainly leave offerings there. Um, indoors works if you're trying to connect to things that you think are already in the house. Uh, there's they're kind of everywhere do you think something the size of say a birdhouse is adequate or do you need something like a small shed <laughs> kind of weird question but no, for yeah no it's a good question um i think for most people uh what you're going to have inside your house you probably are okay with like a little birdhouse, something about that size. Uh, most of the ones that people uh, that I've seen people use are about that size. Um, if you are trying to connect to things that are larger, um, then you would want to scale up. And now I would really love to see like a, a repurposed shed turned into like a, Fairy house. A, a fairy house, yeah. That would be really cool. I have never seen that yet, so well, Carol someone Garcia, out there needs to do it. Yeah, that's I, we're on that. <laughs> <laughs> do you know how large they may get, and do you know how large they may show themselves in a tree or anywhere in the forest or anywhere? Sure. So, And there's actually a really good um, site you can go to. It's called the Fairy Census. Um, it's done by the Fairy Investigation Society, and they spent four years doing surveys um, and then collecting the information for all sorts of sightings um, from like I believe the 1970s through 2018, I think is when it came out. 
Um, and if you look through that um, or look through just the, the breadth of the folklore, you really have so many options here. Um, there are people who have seen them as just almost like tiny balls of light. Um, there's people who have seen them uh, as human-sized, very human-appearing, but clearly not human, um, kind of like those fairy dogs I was talking about earlier. Um, there are also some types of fairies that are larger than humans. Um, if you go to Iceland, for example, you'll hear stories about trolls. Um, some trolls are more human-sized, but um, there's a particular beach if you go to with this gigantic stone outcropping that does look kind of human shaped, but is, is like 30 feet tall. And it's supposed to be a troll because trolls turn to stone in the sunlight. So the idea is they got caught out and turned to stone. Um, So there's, there's a huge range. Um, And the same thing with what they're going to look like. You know, you, you have things that look like dogs, as I mentioned, cats um, look fairly human. You have things that look, um, like what you would expect from mass media, sort of that small with wings. Um, you have just this huge range of possibilities. Um, it's almost easier to say what they're not going to look like <laughs> than to, to talk about everything they potentially could look like, um, which again is why I think people probably have seen them more often than they realize you just don't uh, know that that's what you're seeing. With every bit of folklore, there's always some sort of element of truth. Uh, with the Scandinavian stuff, I know they had their own sort of witches and shamans. They had the satyr, and you had uh, maybe, I think might have been the Finnish, that had this sort of shamanistic culture that was working its way over. And they, they seemed to intermingle, even though there was a lot of, I don't know, <clears throat> aggravation between countries or territories then because people are crazy yeah with uh with the trolls Mm -hmm. um this idea that they would turn to stone does that have any roots in things like vampires or medusa you know i'm honestly not sure about medusa because i'd never thought about that and that would predate a lot of what we have um, cause obviously Medusa goes way back. Um, vampires are an interesting topic, uh, kind of on their own. So it's important to understand, particularly with the Norse material that until fairly recently, when you hear people talking about like seeing a ghost, they don't mean it the way we mean it today. They don't mean like a, you know, an apparition or something intangible. When they talk about ghosts, they, they literally mean like the dead person, <laughs> came back corporeally Um, physical body yes Uh, and there's actually some really fascinating stories about um problems that people had when like their dead uncle whoever showed up and wouldn't leave (laughs) um which was not not cool with the family no Um, it's like thanksgiving you can't go home from Yeah, exactly. So when we look at the older vampire stories, a lot of times they're along these lines. It's, it's literally um, like a reanimated corpse that would show up and then you would get people within the family or people who, you know, around this vampire who then um, start falling ill with this wasting sickness and then also eventually die. And it's very different from like our modern conceptions of it. Um, which has always kind of fascinated me the way that that folklore has sort of grown and changed 
over the years. Um, definitely there were no sexy vampires 200 years ago. That was not like vampires. No, <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Um, but yeah, the be. idea. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I was going to say the idea that the trolls turn to stone um, that goes back at least a thousand years, but I'm honestly not sure if we have any idea where it comes from before that. There's our friend Ken Allen from the Wizards Table. Wizards Table. And we always sing the name of their podcast because he does it for us and we love Ken. Yes. yes. He's a good guy. Steve is out there. Hello, Steve. Oh, yeah. Mr. Auclair has, has a question. Appearance. Do you think children uh, experience fairies more? It's pretty commonly thought to be the case. Um, you know, and this is across a range of everything. Um, and there's a couple possible reasons why. Um, I think the main reason that I tend to favor is the idea that children are more open to believing what they see. Um, adults are really quick to rationalize stuff away and they'll have an experience, but then they'll talk themselves out of it. <laughs> Mm, and, like you know, to do that in a way, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas kids, because they don't have that innate um, idea of you know this can't be real, you know, kids are very. Um, they just take things as it is. They don't tend to look at this like, okay, this isn't possible. Because to them, you know, they don't know. Maybe it is possible, you know. Um, so I think we see a lot more stories with children having experiences because they're more open to being aware of the experience. And kids are also much more willing to talk about it. I, I do think a lot of adults do have experiences, but then they feel embarrassed. You know, you don't necessarily want to go out there and tell all your friends that you think you saw a fairy. Um which again is why I'm thrilled that the president of Mexico is all over the newspapers for saying he saw an elf. That's awesome. What did Absolutely. he say? I'm sorry. Can you say that again? Um, oh, the the thing about the president of Mexico yes. um, saying that he saw an elf. And oh, yeah. I think that, you know, I think that's what we need. We need people to come forward who are considered credible, um, you know, respected people mm -hmm. and kind of change that narrative and make it socially acceptable kind of the way ghosts are like most people if you say you saw a ghost like people might tease you a little bit but nobody's really gonna question whether you did because everyone deep down thinks you know that could happen right right and most people have had some sort of ghostly experience in their lives yeah, they have. Yep. you know it's just like a matter of of relating it um societies like the psychical society in london and uh i think what do they call the one in the u.s oh, i forget it might have been the united states psychical society or whatever uh they, they really like tested these things and would have extremely credible people in these seances trying to recreate what was being done in theaters and that sort of thing to lend it that credibility so that somebody would look at that and and be able to you know give it credence beyond because they knew it was real yeah but they also knew there were a lot of people that were charlatans so they yep. were like okay we're gonna like line up this scientist and this you know uh pull a su surprise uh, su astrophysicist yeah astrophysicist yeah. Pull a put them all together writer. you know yeah yep. sorry it's okay um 
<laughs> put them together in a room, Seven. you know, around a table so that, you know, their, their opinions seem to matter a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I think, unfortunately, fairy belief took a big hit because there was a very high profile hoax um, in the early 20th century. And I'm sure when I say this, most people are going to know what I'm talking about, the Cottingly fairies. Yeah. And, you know, this was a case where these two girls had um, come forward saying they had photographs of fairies and it at the time caused a huge stir like i don't think a lot of times today we really conceptualize what a big deal this was um this was back before photoshop this was back before cameras were even very widespread um i believe it was right around world war one and um there was a lot of very fierce argument and debate about whether the pictures were real or they were not real. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, um, the person who writes the, the Sherlock Holmes books, uh, who was a spiritualist, came forward and was very supportive of the girls and the photographs. He um, even bought them equipment to use to try to prove they weren't faking it. Um, he gave them a camera. He gave them the the um, photo plates so that they knew they weren't tampering with that. Um, and they produced additional pictures. And um, it, it was really quite a, a big deal when it happened. But unfortunately, later in life, um, one of the girls, you know, at that point, an adult woman, uh, came forward and admitted that they had faked the majority of the pictures. She always claimed to the day she died that one of the photos was real. Um, but that they had faked the others and they had done it in the most simple, low-tech way. Um, they had literally cut out from a coloring book, a children's coloring book, these dancing fairy figures and then set them up on sticks in the foreground and then had, you know, one of the girls would take the picture and the other one would pose. Um, so it's it's like the most low-tech <laughs> right? fake out there. But they look um, good. They I've did. seen those pictures. We've seen them. <laughs> Yeah, we talked about them before, and they they do look, you know, like wow. All right, is that real? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, you could, the technology back in that day was just there. Really, wasn't any. So it was they did a yeah. really good job. Yeah, they did. Guys, for gaffing on the word Pulitzer, I, I think I said Pulitzer okay. Prize, which is like I don't know Porky's or something. I don't know. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but <laughs> that was my my moment there. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I think after the, the Cottingly Ferry incident happened, I think a lot more people were hesitant to come forward and say they believed in fairies or they had a fairy experience because people would immediately be pointing to this huge hoax that had happened and, you know, kind of, oh, you're so silly for believing in that because, you know, didn't you see Arthur Conan Doyle supported this and it's just fake. And yeah, it was a whole thing. Yeah, so, no, he was good friends with Houdini. Uh, mm-hmm. during the, the spiritualist movement, right? Who was kind of the debunker. Yep, and he yep. would try to replicate a lot of the seance stuff on stage and prove that it was fake. Not, not that he didn't get stumped ever, but you had kind of the two sides. And I think it's great to have more than one side and not just debunk everything. Our friend Bob Burnell asked, are there city fae or do you need yes. to be in a rural setting? or?" <laughs> Um, yep, there we definitely find the good folk uh, fairies pretty much everywhere. Um, and there's there's different types, which I've mentioned. There's specific named types of, of fairy beings. But 
we have some that you're, you're going to be more likely to find out in the wild in nature. Um, like in Scotland, there's a particular being, it's called the Urisk, which tends to like hang out alone in the woods and isn't a fan of humans as a rule. Um, and then you have others who we know are very connected to humans. Um, you know, domestic fairies, for example, which are the ones that would live in people's houses. And uh, we've been talking about a little uh, throughout the show. And then you have ones that are known to show up around um, human activities, we'll just say. So like horse racing is uh, something we hear the fairies are very interested in <laughs> across folklore. Really? Um yeah, yeah. And also fairs, um, what we would call harvest fairs today, but um, these sort of big gatherings for selling and buying and trading. Um, and it, it's kind of led to a lot of modern speculation about malls and mall fairies, mall elves, um, the idea that they would really like that sort of place and that kind of energy because um, it's it's entertaining and there's a lot going on there. Um, obviously, depending on your mall, not every mall is as active as every other mall. But um, yeah, we we definitely have yeah we definitely have urban fairies for sure. Um, and there was actually a really fascinating story from a couple years ago um, that a gentleman had related in a YouTube video where um, he was coming out of a bar in the middle of a city at like two a.m. I think he worked in the bar and it had closed, and he was walking home. And he saw this gentleman who kind of intercepted him and went our assistant finding companionship, I'll just say. And the guy was like, you know, not, not my thing. Um, I'm just getting out of work and I want to go home. And so he walked past him and kept walking, gets to the next corner and the same guy is there and kind of says the same thing. And now the first guy's getting a little freaked out and he's like, no, you know, I can't help you. And he starts kind of jogging <laughs> quickly to get towards his home. And a couple blocks later, the same guy is in front of him again. And now he's getting really freaked out because he can't figure out how this person keeps getting ahead of him. Yeah. And, you know, the same thing, asking the same question. So the guy just takes off running, runs across the bridge, runs into the first thing he sees open, which is like a 24-hour fast food kind of restaurant, walks in the door. And as he's walking in the door, the same guy sitting at a table turns and says the same thing to him. Like, can you help me, you know, find some temporary companionship? We'll just say. Um, and the, the guy telling the story said he actually started crying because he was so upset at this point because there was no physical way he had crossed a little bridge and there was no way the guy could have got uh, ahead of him or yeah. Um, it was just sounds a little like the Kelpie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, was... <laughs> a little kelpie energy going on there for sure um and then he he ran out of the fast food building and, and ran the rest of the way to his apartment and um was was profoundly freaked out but that happened in the city so clearly there's some city fairies out there maybe some city kelpies even that's great and i i know people in uh, urban areas often wonder about these things guy can i do witchcraft can i see some of these things because we tend to think of them out in the green mountains and in the hills and in the woods, deep in the woods. And that that's like the only place that occurs, but uh, this stuff occurs everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And again, I think it comes down sometimes to the type. Um, you know, you're always going to have certain kinds that are going to prefer the woods. 
you know, just like kinds of animals. And then, you know, you're always, you're going to have those that adapt, you know, like they have red tail hawks nesting in cities because they're adapting to yes. the, the environment that they have, you know, the option that they have. Right. It's like over the hedge. Over the hedge. Exactly. <laughs> yes. yes. The anime movie, yes. They're pushing them away, but eventually they got to come back. So, yeah, I mean, they've got to go somewhere. So, yeah, yeah it's my favorite. <laughs> All the squirrels are my favorite <laughs> movies. So, now your latest book is called 21st Century Fairy. Mm-hmm. And I do see it on Amazon. I don't see it on that other link yet. I, I, I don't know. Is it out yet? Yep. Yep. It came out the end of January. It should be Barnes and Noble, Amazon, all that fun stuff. It's Great. it's out in the wild now. Share a picture of that. Let me see. And there we go. Um, go here because we gotta reshare it because Streamyard changed the rules. Okay, there's 21st Century Fairy, and this is your latest book, correct? Yes. Yep. Um, I have another one coming out in May, but it's a novel um, that I wrote. So slightly different <laughs> train of thought there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this this one just came out. Um, it's focused on, as I said, sort of exploring the idea of fairies in the 21st century. Um, I share a lot of my own personal stories, uh, the bulk of which have happened in the 21st century. And um, also I talk about things like why we think fairies have wings, why we think fairies have pointed ears, um, you know, how those are sort of newer ideas, but they're, they are happening now in people's experiences. And I sort of dig into all of that. I see Kimberly Horn asks, do you have any audio? Do you have any audio versions of your books? I, at this point, I have two books out on audiobook. Uh, my fairy craft and fairies um fairies by the way is the book that i I most often recommend to people interested in the subject because it's sort of a good general starter book on um, what fairies are how to interact with them safety etiquette all that fun stuff um it's only those two on audio right now i i don't have a lot of control over audiobooks um because i do i publish through a publisher and i sort of have to see you know, if things get optioned, if the rights get optioned for audiobooks. But so far, those two. Um, hopefully, in the future, we'll get some more out there for people. Great. And this is your publisher's website, which we've gotten a ticker, which for uh, people that are listening to this as a podcast, you can find at www.johnhuntpublishing.com uh, slash cosmic egg. Did I read that right? You did. Publishers. Um, cosmic, uh, cosmic egg dash books. I'm sorry. Dot books. And you can browse to authors and then, then Morgan, you'll see Morgan's name there. And this has quite the collection. I, yeah. You have 42 books. This, this is amazing. All right. And so just months. to read some of the titles uh, to the folks again, who, who may just hear this as a podcast, uh, we've got, um, Fairies, Odin, um, the Morrigan, uh, uh, Bridget, Raven Goddess, nice. uh, the Norse, Freya. Freya is, uh, oh, I see 21st century fairy on here now. Sorry, it was, it was toward the bottom. Yep, Freya, Living fairy. 
Yep, Freya is coming out in July. So that one's not out yet, okay. but soon. Okay, Thor. So you, you delve into um, most of this kind of European, uh, you know, mythology. And uh, I hate to use that word mythology because there's truth in this stuff. That's right. We don't have like a ton of data, right? But we have enough to kind of start putting the pieces together as to what these folks were doing. I love the um, the Pantheon the Nor- of the Norse. That's a great book. Thank you. Um, I'm really I'm really proud of that one. That was really hard to write. <laughs> um, um, Kim Horn wants to know: Do you do uh, do book signings? I have in the past. Yeah. Um, particularly when I'm at specific events, I'll do them. And then, um, as I mentioned, my friend owns a store. Uh, which I guess I'll just mention which one it is, uh, Pandora's Box in Norwich, Connecticut. Um, and she carries all my books signed. So if you want signed books, um, that's a good option. If you want them personalized, um, I, I do book signings when I'm at events or when I'm out, out and about. Um, and I, I can theoretically, you know, if you contact me like on Facebook or Twitter or, you know, however... Uh, maybe look at uh, doing it and mailing it to you. I don't do that as a rule, so it would take a little while, um, but it's, it's a possibility if you really want a signed book. Excellent. That's great. I, I think that's awesome. And uh, so people know, and the way to look you up on social media, uh, your name is Morgan, uh, mm-hmm. obviously M-O-R-G-A-N-D-A-I-M-L-E-R. Yep. Daimler, um, like the car company, Daimler Chrysler, Daimler Benz. Yeah. Do you have any shares in that? <laughs> I do not. It's, it's actually my ex-husband's last name. So it's, it's his family. Um, and we always used to joke that we, we did not get a free car, which is <laughs> sad. <laughs> oh, the, the Benz would have been nice. Yes. It would have. I, I would not have said no. So. <laughs> I wanted to thank Kimberly Horn personally. We did for sending us 200 stars. Thank you. Yeah, very, very much. Uh, thank you for that, Kim. We appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate you, Morgan. Yes. Thank this you. This has Morgan. been a great yes. talk. I, I think our internet yeah, is fixed me. and it seems yeah, like we're hearing each other. We had a little bit of a rough start, it's but the fairies that figure. the nature of uh, what <laughs> we just going to say ghosts in the machine. Uh, fairies in the machine. Um, just went out again. Wherever I'm, on. <laughs> it's always something. Yeah. Yeah, we find this Fairies to be true. Machine, I like that. People. Yes. Yeah. Oh, why not? Hey, in the machine. <laughs> hey, it, it happens. But uh, this has been a blast. <laughs> yes. I, I want our folks to look up your book, Twenty First Century Fairies. Uh, check it out. Check out all of Morgan's books because. They are awesome. You're a very prolific writer, a very intelligent writer. And I know we're friends on oh, Facebook. I see your posts and I'm like, yeah, this girl is like on it. You know, you are just all about it, getting it right. Um, you know, you're not messing around. You know, you, I, I don't I think get a little spicy sometimes. I, I think you're doing this for the passion of it and that you love this yeah. topic and the history that goes behind it. And uh, that's really clear in uh, evidential in your social media, as well as your books, Mm -hmm. which is fantastic. You know, thank you for um, saying that. And I, I, 
I definitely passionate about it. So I'm glad that comes through. It does. It does. It does. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we will do this again. For sure. Thank you for having me on again. I had a great time. You're very welcome. Thank you. We did too. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, stick around if you like. We're going to just close up the show. And this awesome. has been a blast. Guys, that's all the time we have for tonight for Bigfoot and the Bunny. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank each and every one of you in the audience. You guys are, are wonderful. Yes, thank you. Uh, absolutely brilliant. Great questions tonight. And uh, we look forward <laughs> to talking to you next Thursday on Dark Horse Paranormal. Have a great and safe weekend. Thank you. Bunny love.